I was only broadcasting on Facebook. I apologize. Right? So if you're joining us on, on Facebook, you can text in your questions to us using the comment box. Or if you're joining us through the BibleQuest.org app, you can use the uh, Q&A window. In fact, I suggest you have the Q&A window up as we're going through the material today. Um, I'm a little choppy here. You notice I didn't have the broadcast going right away. And that's because there's a little change up in the show today. Um, my three other uh, panelists, Scott, Stephen, and Jeff, well, they're away this week, leaving me to fend for myself. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not completely by myself. Noah Andrews uh, is in the background filling in as our webcast engineer. And so Noah, uh, he'll be helping us to keep things uh, moving along smoothly. Um, Noah is going to be monitoring the screens also for questions, whether you're coming in on Facebook or the app, um, so that any questions or comments coming in, he'll be popping in. So if you hear a voice or see a different face, it's Noah. Noah will be with us as well. Okay, so I uh, just want to make sure, Noah, my screen is being shared, right? Yeah, you're good. Okay, I'll make sure everybody can see see the screen. Um, and that screen, obviously, is the question that I'm going to be asking with everybody today. Um, now, I'm going to ask you the question, everyone in the audience, and I would like your feedback as we go through the material, because I'll give some answers, but I'll also leave some questions open. Um, is there evidence or proof to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually occurred? In other words, as a historical event. Or is it something that people just have to, or, or choose to, accept as faith? In other words, one just has to believe it happened because that's what it says in the Bible, right? I mean, isn't that what we normally think? Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I do believe the Bible is the Word of God. It is the absolute truth, and it's the only source for truth. But in our society today, more and more people are claiming, actually they're not suggesting, they're actually claiming, uh, that the Bible is no longer valid. So how do you refute that? How do you refute that claim? If they're not going to accept it, then how are you going to show that Jesus was raised from the dead? Is it something like me against you and my belief against your belief? Actually, that won't get us anywhere with that mindset or that type of person. What I'd like to do, or rather what I do with that kind of discussion, is I'll use historical facts uh, that no one can deny. Even a skeptic can't deny it. It's locked in. It's history. It's there. And plus, I'd like to use logic and reason, which the Creator has given us to see. I mean, it's part of the argument that Paul was making in, first in the first chapter of Romans and in regards to the Gentiles who didn't know God. So in our discussion, I will be referring to external historical evidence and facts, non-biblical documents that records information about Jesus and about Jesus' followers of the first century. Uh, I'm talking about actual documentation from Roman historians living in their times back then. I'll also be presenting some information from at least one contemporary historian and scholar. Uh, what I'm about to present uh, to you for your consideration, by the way, is only a few bits and pieces from a series of lessons that I developed over the years, lessons that I presented in adult classes, in an adult classroom setting. 
this series with all of that information covers several weeks of study and discussion, depending on how many classes I would do in a single week. So obviously today we're only going to look at a few appetizers, for lack of a better word. So during the time we have today, I hope that um, I spark a few questions from you and the audience. So please text in your questions and your comments. And uh, Noah will be right there making those comments available and questions. Now, bef before I get to some of that external evidence, the historical evidence that I was talking about, I do want to look at a few scriptures uh, from a vantage point of making some logical sense of what the statement is being made in the scripture and some understanding of the mindset, to some extent, of the first century Christians, Greeks and Gentiles, all categories. This is going to help set the table for when I bring uh, the appetizers out <laughs> that I mentioned before, if I can continue using that, that uh, metaphor. So let me get started. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, we learn that Paul was in Athens, Athens, Greece. He was waiting for Silas and Timothy, the great city of Athens, center of uh, the Greek gods and the Greek philosophy. And you know, those of you who are familiar with Acts 17, as Paul walked about, he saw the city was full of what? Idols, these huge statues. I mean, I'm only showing you four there, but they're all over the place. And we also know from uh, Acts 17, 16, it bothered him. It provoked him. It really bothered him. But as he's going through the, the, the marketplace, the philosophers who were very religious, and they worshipped these different gods, they heard Paul speaking, right, in the marketplace. And what did they ask him to do? They asked him, hey, come tell us what this new teaching is. What is this you're talking about? We want to hear more. Well, what was the new teaching? It was the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. Where's my slides? I want to make sure I got the right slide there. Okay, there we go. The resurrection, yeah. Uh, look in Acts 17 for a quick minute. Acts 17, let me read it. It's on my screen. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, was a physical, historical event, right? He said it was an assurance. What's an assurance? It's a proof. A proof of what? Of some future event. What is that event? It will be the righteous judgment of God, okay? In order for something to be an assurance or a proof, the resurrection had to be a factual historical event when Paul was saying that. If not, Paul's words to those men would, would have no meaning, no basis. And that's what he's claiming in 31. Of this, that's the resurrection, he has given an assurance to all. I'm sorry, of this, that's the future event of the judgment. Of this, he has given an assurance to all by the fact of raising him from the dead. 
He was saying that by the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection, you philosophers, you can be assured that God's judgment will come. You can see the resurrection because there's proof that they're living among the people who saw him. They can go and check it out. That's the fact. But because of that fact, the the judgment that's going to be coming in the future, you can't see it, but you can be sure of it. You see the point I'm trying to make? In fact, Peter, he adds more information to the story too. Over in 1 Peter, he says, Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God? Notice what Peter's saying. He says their faith is not that they hope the resurrection happened, that resurrection of Christ. No, look at the chronology of what he's saying. He said he raised them from the dead and gave them glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Do you see that? You see what I'm saying? Again, I'm not using this to prove the resurrection happened. I'm using this logically and reason, uh, using logic and reason from the mindset and point of view that they are speaking in the way Paul and Peter is writing. He's saying, Peter's saying, you didn't have faith in the resurrection. No, no, that was an event that they saw and they knew happened. That was a fact in their world. Their faith in God came from that fact. Faith in God who they can't see. The resurrection they saw, God they can't. But because of that resurrection, because of that event, they can have faith and hope. And then Paul adds this in 1 Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, excuse me, and your faith is in vain. Their faith in what is in vain? What would be in vain? Would it be the, their faith in the resurrection? No, no. Their faith in God would be in vain if the resurrection did not actually happen. See the point? In fact, Paul said he would be a liar in verse 15 if there was no resurrection from the dead. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, which means that if Paul, he's saying it there, you can't trust me if this didn't happen, which means you can't trust his word on anything he said. You couldn't even trust the Bible. He wrote what? 14, 15 of the letters? If the rest, I'm sorry, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen. I got too many screens here. Forgive me for a minute, second there, Noah. Okay. Now, the point I want to make here is that, I told you I got too many screens. <laughs> the point I want to make is that these three passages, Acts 17, 1 Peter 1, and 1 Corinthians 15, They claim that this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was an actual historical event. Therefore, by its own nature, this event is powerful, the resurrection. You and I know that. Those of us that believe and recognize who Jesus Christ is know that. But the event is so powerful that it can change people's lives. The Apostle Paul warned that the judgment of God is coming, right? And that's what he told those men on Mars Hill. And that judgment cannot be prevented. It can't be stopped by anyone. That's why it's so important to know 
that we can avoid that coming wrath only by the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to know the facts surrounding the crucifixion and facts surrounding the resurrection. So let's first consider the, uh, the execution. The fact of the matter is that crucifixion was not just the means of torture, you know, just the means of killing someone, although that's what it did, and as horrible as it was, you realize that it's much more than that, way more than that. It was about destroying the man that hung on that cross as a human being, destroying his reputation, destroying him morally, physically, and humiliating him beyond measure. The idea was to make him look like dirt in order to make a show out of this torture. And in the process, no one who sees him hanging up on that cross would want to consider doing anything that would put themselves on that Roman cross. Rome, Rome invented this crucifixion and this execution for that purpose question I have is, did Rome succeed in destroying Jesus's reputation? Have you ever thought of that? Did Rome succeed in destroying his reputation? I'm going to be so bold and say, yes, they did. They did succeed in destroying his reputation. In fact, we have physical historical evidence that proves that not only was Jesus crucified? We have biblical evidence. I'm looking for evidence for the skeptic who says, oh, you can't believe and trust the Bible. I'm looking for evidence that we could communicate and have a conversation with them. We have physical, historical evidence that proves he was actually crucified and that his reputation was indeed destroyed. Now, I'm not talking about proving with this physical evidence his resurrection yet. I'm talking about the fact of the, of the crucifixion. Have you ever heard of the Alexamenos Graffito? If you're in the audience and you have your text windows open or you're on, uh, on Facebook, have you ever heard that? Yes or no? That's all I'm looking for. I want to see how many people heard it. Have you ever heard of the Alexamenos Graffito? I'll start giving you some information. It's discovered in 1857. And it was an inscription, as you can see here on the slide, carved in plaster. It was on a wall. This plaster was on a wall near something called the Palatine Hill in Rome. Now, it resides today, to this very day, in the Palatine Antiquarium Museum. And most, most uh, historians, they dated around 200 A.D. Think about that one. This makes this object the earliest surviving physical depiction of Jesus upon a cross. I mean, we have a lot of paintings today. We've got statues with Jesus on the cross. You know, people that paint, paint these, these beautiful works of art, uh, what, early 1400s, 1500s and, and, and later. But this one goes back to the 200s. Um, now, the, the difference, though, between modern depictions of, of Jesus, this one is not a religious icon meant to elicit awe or worship. No, no, the inscription on this icon says, where is it, where is it? There it is. 
Alexamenos worships his god. This graffiti is a mockery of Alex, Alexamenos, if I'm saying his Greek name right, Alexamenos. He's an ancient Christian. And it's a mockery not only of Alexamenos, it's also a mockery of God. Who would die? What God would die a shameful death as a criminal on a cross? Let me remove some of the dust. There's some background specs that was in that graffiti. Here they removed the, the archaeologist or whoever's controlling, whoever manages this art. They removed out all of that noise in the background. And so you can see now what, what the art looked like when it was first done. It's meant to mock. Notice the donkey's head on that creature that's hanging on the cross. That donkey said that horses or donkey said is, is, a, is meant to be a mockery. And the point was saying, look at this idiot, Alex Amenos. Look what kind of God this idiot has, who he worships. Yeah, Gentiles, they worship the sun god. Why? Because they believe the sun god gave them warmth, or the god of harvest, they who... You know, they believe that the God of harvest gave them food and fertility. But God, your God on a cross, that was unthinkable. That was foolishness. Jesus' reputation was clearly destroyed in the eyes of the Gentiles. In the wisdom of the world, crucifixion was proof that there's no way this man can be anyone of importance, of any value whatsoever. This is hard for us to understand, but that's what was going on in the first several centuries. Crucifixion meant you're nobody. As Jesus hung on that cross, there was no way to think that he was sent from God or that God was with him. It's really hard for us to have a sense of that culture or that mindset of the Gentiles and the Jews towards this act of execution. As he hung on that cross, really, the whole world looked at him in shame. He was an embarrassment. I mean, do you remember, you know, the, to the Jew, what was the, to the Jew? Cursed be anyone who hangs on the cross? That was in their, it was in Deuteronomy. That was their law. They, they also looked at it that way. But to the Gentile, it was foolishness. It was despicable. Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you in the audience can tell me how many crucifixions Rome performed during its time as a world empire? We really don't know, but there were hundreds, many. Out of those hundreds, and there probably could have been more, thousands, we don't know. And the reason we don't know is how many names of other men did history record that were crucified? None, not one. Rome was, uh, was extremely successful. Crucifixion accomplished what it was intended to do. Destroy the man, destroy his reputation as if he never existed. This is so important to understand that as we try to look at evidence that shows that this event happened. The mindset was this man, he was dirt, he was garbage, not worthy of living. What turned it around for Jesus, as opposed to those other hundreds and hundreds of guys that were, were crucified? What turned it around for him? Only one thing that I think of is resurrection. 
the fact that Jesus Christ's name didn't disappear into oblivion like all those others makes no sense at all if he didn't, in fact, rise from the grave. When they found that empty tomb, that changed everything. You know, when over 500 eyewitnesses at one time saw him walking on the earth after the crucifixion, that changed everything. I want you to meet somebody here. I want you to meet this historian. He's an Old Testament scholar, still living today. Pincus Lapid is a modern-day Jew who, in fact, doesn't care for Christianity that much. But I want to read a couple of quotes from him. He said, I accept the resurrection not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on that Easter Sunday were a public event, which had been made known, not only to the 530 Jewish witnesses, but to the entire population, all Jews would have become followers of Jesus. Is that an amazing statement? He said that he's glad that after the resurrection, that there were only 530 witnesses. Now, we, we can decide where he came up with that number. We know that at one time, 500 witnesses saw Jesus, over 500. But anyway, he's saying not more than five. If, I'm glad it was only 530 because otherwise there'd be no room for Judaism in the first century. He also then goes on to say, if the defeated and depressed group of disciples overnight could change into a victorious movement of faith based only on auto-suggestion or self-deception without a fundamental faith experience, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. A much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Now these quotes... They tell you something about the nature of the physical evidence that has to exist that men can say this about the, concerning the resurrection of Christ. Let's look at some conditions, though, during the time when this event took place. The idea of a physical bodily resurrection was something that people of that day were not ready to believe or accept. It was hard to accept. What I'm talking about is a reversal of death. That's what was hard to accept, a reversal of death. For the Gentiles, the concept of reversal of death was so hard to swallow. It was so perversive at that time that even Gentile Christians had a hard time with it. Do you realize that? Gentile Christians had a hard time with the concept of a physical, personal, bodily resurrection? What did Paul say in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15? Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I don't know about you, but in the past... I had a hard time making sense on how could Christians say there's no resurrection? I mean, you and I today would never say that, right? They knew Jesus was raised, didn't they? Yeah. But for some reason, reversal of death for everyone else, you know, personally, was not an option in their mind. 
they didn't know what how to treat that for themselves. And since Paul is writing about this issue in the whole chapter, this implies that their position uh, of not accepting a personal bodily resurrection from the dead was very strong among them. Do you remember what happened when the women uh, who found the tomb empty on that third day? They ran back to tell the apostles, he's alive, the master's come back from the dead. I mean, that's basically what they said, right? How did they take it? They didn't believe it. That's impossible. I don't know if you realize, but that's what, that's what they're saying. Uh, Luke 2, I'm sorry, Luke 24, 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, that, that the tomb was empty. But these words seemed to them as, idle, as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I read right through that so many times and just go through it and not realize, you know what? They had a hard time with this, didn't they? Look at Peter in the next verse. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. <laughs> that word marveling. He went home in shock. <laughs> how could this be? How, how could this happen? There was, I don't want to, there had to be. They didn't believe it. It was having, they were having a hard time. We know they were having a hard time because even in Mark 16, I don't, I don't have this verse up, but in Mark 16, 14, what was Jesus doing? He was rebuking his very own apostles for not believing he reversed death. Even after those others that saw, the, saw him, they already saw him on the road and they told him. No, Jesus had to show them convincing proof it was he who returned from the grave. Why were they having such a hard time to accept this? Because returning from the grave, reversing death, coming back to life, was an impossible concept for them to accept. That's why it was so important for Paul to point out to the Corinthians, there were over 500 people who saw him at once. The majority of them, he said, uh, what was that, in 1 Corinthians? Yeah, the majority of them, they're still alive. You, what does that mean, they're still alive? It means, as a Corinthian, I could go out and see who they are. I, I can go talk to them and meet them and, and hear the stories that they they said, they're telling about what, what it was like seeing Jesus after his death. But notice again, this is a foreign idea of resurrection, reversal of death, for everyone during that time. When Paul was preaching Jesus raised from the dead to the philosophers, he was mocked, right? Acts 17. And when he was speaking about Jesus uh, to King Agrippa, Festus, the governor in Judea, stood up and said, Paul, you're crazy. You're and when did he say that? When he got to the point about Jesus being raised from the dead. My point is this, that it was extremely hard for all Gentiles, Christian Gentiles and others, to grasp the concept of reversing death. It went against their worldview. Now, I said all of that put emphasis on their mindset to help us understand this. In spite of the fact that this concept went against their worldview, immediately after Jesus' resurrection, as if out of nowhere, 
this new and powerful religious movement exploded on the scene, starting from Judea. Christianity didn't gradually evolve over hundreds of years, which modern critics try to suggest today. We have external evidence of the fact that it didn't evolve over hundreds of years. And keep that in mind, because that's, that's who I'm talking to. I'm talking to the skeptic. I'm talking to the non-believer who's not sure or doesn't believe it happened. Well, we're looking at this from the point of view of historical evidence and reason looking at documents. Let's, let's put aside our biases or our, our, our belief systems for a moment and just let's just look at it bare. Just look at the, the raw evidence. Because we have external evidence that this did not evolve over hundreds of years. Have you ever heard, I'm sure you have, I'm sure some of you had heard of Cornelius Tacitus, right? Tacitus was a Roman senator, an orator, a great historian. Notice when he was living, slide says, between 56 and 120 AD. In his book, he wrote a book called The Annals of Imperial Rome. Everybody can read it. Go on the internet and just search for it. Go to Google, search for it. You can actually read what he says. There's a lot of stuff. I'm not going to look at all everything he's written, but I want to look at a few key points that he wrote. He wrote about the six-day fire of Rome. It happened in July 64, I was going to say 1964, 64 AD. And he mentions how Nero gave, gov gave government support and help to those people who were uh, became homeless because of the result of this fire. And he was offering to help to rebuild the devastated city. However, at that time, there were rumors spreading around, and we've heard of these rumors too, that Nero was the one responsible for that fire. And so uh, to divert attention away from himself, Nero accused the Christians of starting the fire and began persecuting them. And this was the major confrontation that started between Christians and the authorities of Rome. Nero's the guy who started it. And we know that this happened because Tacitus wrote about this in his history book. Let me read the quote. Consequently, consequently to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Tacitus identified that the origin of this movement was Christ. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that is crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilatus. He's identifying that the origin of this movement was Christ. And that the doc, and he documents that it was executed during the time frame of Tiberius. The scripture says that too. I mean, we know that. But here's a here's person that's not a Christian. In fact, there's no friend of Christian, of Christianity. He wrote this down. He goes on to say, excuse me, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful come, I'm sorry, shameful from every part of the world, find their center and, be, and become popular. Guys, 
we are of those of the mischievous, mischievous superstition. We're evil. This thing started in Judea. It was checked for a while, but then it popped up again, and it ended up all the way in Rome. So here's my question to you. I don't know if we got any answers from the other questions yet, but I guess I'm answering them as we're going along. Here's my question. Based on this historian, Tacitus, his records, how many years did it take to get this movement to the size that Tacitus claims it was? How many years? 30? This, he's writing about an event of the fire in 64, and he's writing the history about this. And notice what they were, um, uh, they were convicted for. According, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Not only is this evidence of the cruelties that first century Christians faced by the hand of Rome, this is hard evidence, number one, of the existence of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was crucified and that this new explosive movement called Christianity didn't evolve over hundreds of years. He's talking about it, a, man, what a multitude were convicted and it expanded across the Roman Empire. So, what motivated those Christians? What was it that drastically changed their lives, which caused them to be hated to this level and led to their own execution? What could have done that? A belief that something happened? No, it had to be a bodily, the bodily resurrection of Christ from the grave. And like I said before, this is all within 30 years of that event, not over three or 400 years of Christian evolution. Uh, Christian evolution. Now, do you want more factual evidence? Here's another fellow. Where is he? There he is. Oh, did I leave that part out? Yeah, he also added, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and, and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Now, this is facts that he's writing about. This is the other fellow that I want to talk to you about, Lucian of Somasada. He lived in the second century, 120 to 180 AD. Uh, he, he's, he knows a lot about Christians. His writings tell us uh, what he recognizes that is common among them. In other words, what is the thing that identifies them as Christians? What is it that identifies you as a Christian if you're in the audience and you're a Christian? Is it the same thing that he recognizes about those Christians in the second century? Let's read a quote. The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So he recognized that there's a man who Christians worship, who was crucified, and he's the one who started all of this. He's the one that introduced their strange rites. Uh, strange rites. He says, you see, these misguided creatures start with general, the, the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, 
which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. Lucian considered them misguided creatures. But notice what he says about their mindset. They start with the general conviction of their immortal state. They start with it. What do critics tell us today? Critics today tell us that you become a Christian, you start learning this stuff, and over time you start realizing or believing that you're immortal, that you're going to live forever. No, Lucian was telling, recognized the, the opposite. These guys started with that. That's what gave them their confidence to be able to die and suffer the way they did. Have you ever heard of this person, Perpetua? I want to close out this section here and then open it up for more. Anyone have questions? But have you ever heard of Perpetua? She lived in the second, she was born, I guess, in the second, yeah, born in the second century, lived in the second century. She's one of these Christians who Lucian was referring to, misguided creatures, uh, willing to just face death. This is a true story. And it's based on a diary that this woman wrote while she was in a Roman prison. Uh, She was 22 years old. She was a noble woman, which means she was from a wealthy family, born in Carthage towards the end of the second century. And in 2000, keep saying 2002, no, no, in 202 AD, Emperor Septimius Servius determined to eradicate this growing Christian movement. These Jesus followers were growing in leaps and bounds. He needed to stop it. Well, Perpetua was one of the, among the first to be arrested for refusing to deny Christ. She said, and this is a quote from her, her um, diary, to be called anything, it's impossible to be called anything than what I am, a Christian. Referring back to the painting, this, is, this painting, by the way, was inspired by the information that we have from her diary that she wrote while she was in prison. And you can see in this painting, there's several people surrounding Perpetua. And what they're doing is they're pleading with her. They're begging her. The young man next to her uh, on her right is Hilarinius, the governor, who's similar in the office um, of Pontius Pilate. He actually he doesn't want to kill her. He's pleading with her deny Christ, make a sacrifice to the Roman God, and then, then she can go free. And the old man there sitting further to the right, right next to him, sitting down, the old man, that's her father. And she's pleading, he's pleading to her daughter, have pity on me, have pity on my gray head. Don't abandon me, give up your pride. And the governor tells her, look at your father, Perpetua, what will happen to him after your death? Now the other official on the right, On her left, yeah, it'd be her left, he's holding a document in his hand, and that's a document that she would have received as an official document, as others receive it, as evidence that her duties were paid to Rome. In other words, she sacrificed to their God, and she was officially 
okay. And, uh, but to her, offering this Roman sacrifice was not an option. No, to Perpetua, it was unthinkable to betray her Lord. Uh, and, and an interesting note that we find from her in her diaries that while she was in prison, you know, waiting for her sentencing and all, she gave birth to a baby boy. And the governor's pleading with her. Think about your baby, Perpetua. What will happen to your son? And don't forget now, this is in the second century, the beginning of the second century. This was during a time when babies, you don't want a baby, you just throw them up in the garbage heap. There's no value to them if you didn't want them. And that's what he's trying to say to her. What's going to happen to him? She could have set herself free, but she chose or she and decided not to go free. She could have easily denied Christ by making that sacrifice to the Roman idol, and she could have saved her own life. However, she wanted to remain faithful to Christ. She did not want to mock him. She could have chosen freedom. But this day, she chose something else. The night before her execution, Perpetua gave her diary to another prisoner to finish it because she knew where she was going the next day. And he wanted, she wanted him to finish the story, which included other Christian prisoners that day. And here's what he wrote in that diary. The day of their victory, referring to Perpetua and the other Christians, dawned. The, the day of their victory dawned, and they marched from prison to the amphitheater joyfully as though they were going to heaven with calm faces, trembling, if at all, with joy rather than fear. What motivated these people? What motivated them? The truth is that when Christians were brought to trial by the most powerful government on the planet at that time, each one of them had a chance to spare their own life. All they had to do was deny Jesus Christ. Call the emperor Lord and make your sacrifice to the idol. In fact, you can keep both. You can believe in your, 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 your God Christ, and you can believe in the Roman gods too. See, that's the way Rome said. You can, they're very tolerant. You can believe everybody. But no, Christians, perpetua in this case, and others with her, they couldn't do that. They said, no, Jesus is Lord. Instead, they chose to die like this. And we've seen these paintings. Oh, death, what comes to my mind is, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Guys, this was the world in the first two, three hundred years of Christianity. This is the world that these people lived in during that first, second, and third century. What motivated them? We're not talking a few people. We're talking thousands of people. It's the resurrection. The factual event of the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is the only thing that could motivate people to that extent. His resurrection from the grave, which leads to what? And this is what they knew. Because of that fact, it leads to eternal life. It leads to a life that will never end because he proved it. 
he proved it. That's what motivated him. Nothing else could motivate me. Nothing else could motivate them. All right, these are only a few of the, whoa, look at the time. What's going along so good here? Noah, you've been uh, doing a good job here, keeping everything smooth. And I didn't realize the time was gone. But anyway, perfect timing. If anyone has any questions, I really want to hear from you. Um, I know I gave out a lot of information and did it in a short period of time, but I'll tell you, as I said before, this is only a few pieces, bits and pieces of the whole puzzle. There's a lot more information. Um, and I enjoy talking about it, if you can't tell. And if anybody, by the way, is interested, if, you, if anyone in the audience would like to have an online dialogue conversation study course, I, I'll offer this online. Anyone can come in and let me know, and we'll do a course of all the material. There's a lot more. If you know other people that might be interested, let me know. You know, shoot me an email. Uh, my email address is drew at biblequest.org. Or just go to BibleQuest.org site and fill out the contact information in the comment box. Just say, hey, I'd like to have a, I'd like to go further with this information. What else is there? And let me know what times and days are good for you. And I'll, I'll, I'll make something work. We'll, we'll do it out. We'll figure it out. Oh, wow. I really am impressed with the history. I'm impressed with those people that I have a hard time identifying with because I'm not facing those consequences. Not yet. It's just a different world for us. But that's what gives me the foundation that I know it, it's this, this Christian movement is not made up. Any other questions? Noah, do you see anybody come in with any questions on the Facebook uh, chat? Uh, nope, no questions on Facebook. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think uh, there we didn't have the notification go out to a little glitch with how we did things. So our Facebook viewership has been low today. But. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, as, as uh, yeah, because because Stephen's not here, as I mentioned earlier in the program, we 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 meant normally would broadcast live from his Facebook page, which he has a lot of people following us, and also then from the BibleQuest.org app. Today it was just from the app and the BibleQuest.org Facebook page, the actual Facebook page. So if you're in the audience and you're getting to see this, whether it's on Facebook in any form. Go to our Facebook page, like it, spread the word. Let's help help us get more information out there. Help us to find more people that are is interested in this type of material, and let's have some dialogue. Uh, let's see. I don't think I left anything else out as we're closing out. Did I, Noah? I don't believe so. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us. I want to thank everybody that comes in every week, and any of you new people that come in. And want to invite you back next week at Tuesday at two p.m. Eastern time. And my other panelists will be in. And if this raised any questions you want to ask them during the week, let us know what questions you have, and we'll, we'll address them next week as well. Thank you very much for everybody. I think that's all. And I'll know what. I guess I can just end it right here, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's got – yeah, there it is. Okay. Thanks a lot for your help, Noah. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.